and welcome to episode 127 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, the All About Finding Stuff in Space Edition. Uh, sorry about that, Shane. I think I surprised you there with the recording, but we'll just roll with it. Yeah, I'm. I'm. You know, I'm locked and loaded. I'm always ready. <laughs> Good stuff. Well. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. Um, I, I, and again, my apologies. I'm a little tired today. I was I was actually out doing astronomy uh, all night last night and, until it started getting bright. And and as I as I was telling Shane, I I, I came home and uh, and our, our carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide or one of these detectors uh, ran out of batteries um, about an, about half an hour after after I had fallen asleep. So even though I I was up all night, I was I was up bright and early and ready to go. So, uh, so Shane, let, let's talk about finding stuff in the night sky. That that always presents a challenge, not only for newcomers, but uh, but even last night I, I was struggling to find a few things. So, uh, so yeah, what are your thoughts on this topic? Well, you know, if I remember when I first got into astronomy in terms of like I bought my first real telescope. Um, that was the most intimidating thing for me was like, how do I find anything in the night sky? Because, um, at that point, everything basically looked the same to me other than the moon, <laughs> you know, it was just a bunch of different brightness of stars essentially. And even though some of those stars were planets, um, and, and other objects, but, um, you, 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 you know, you, you start off with uh, some basic understandings and you just sort of work your way up to more and more challenging things. And I think we'll walk people through that today um, and, and talk about some of the tools that you can use. Uh, we'll talk about some good books that people can use. Um, and, you know, maybe to kick it off, I would say the first thing to start with uh, to find in the night sky with a telescope or with binoculars is the moon. It's, yeah. it's the easiest thing. Um, and often, you know, when we do our monthly podcast about objects to observe in, in the upcoming month, there's often a number of planets and sometimes some other deep sky objects that are, you know, really close to the moon. So, you know, locating the moon, you can kind of branch off and end up finding other things, uh, from there. But, um, anyway, that's, uh, that's usually, that, that's how I did it. Actually, when I had my first telescope, which was an eight inch skywatch or Dobsonian it sat unused for a couple of weeks because I wasn't sure exactly how to use it, how to find something. Mm -hmm. And then one night the moon was out and uh, that was the first object I, I found through my telescope. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. First thing I looked at was uh, the planet Mars. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It's sort of similar situation. It was, it was the brightest thing. It was a Mars opposition and um, and it was, it was very high overhead and we had these clouds that were, that were just, it was very, very terrible conditions. And if you weren't somebody who was getting a telescope for the first time and, and only had this one night to use it, you, you probably would never have gone out on this night. And I was actually not sure it wasn't going to rain. And uh, I remember I could see it between the breaks and clouds. Sometimes I could actually see it through the clouds weren't that thick. And so, uh, yeah, I was, I was able to, to get it in there and I was really surprised to be able to see it, uh, even, even with our clouds going by and I could see the polar caps and everything. Yeah. It was just, just amazing to be able to see that. Yeah. That's a great first view through a telescope for sure. Yeah. And sort of fortunately, of course, uh, it was about the only, only thing I could see because of, because of all these other clouds. So it was very easy to figure out what, which one up there, uh, which one up there was Mars, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and then sort of beyond like those, those early um, initial steps, you know, it, it can uh, be challenging to, uh, to sort of make, make our way through, through the, uh, the night sky. But, 
You know, probably one of one of the best places to get started is really just to begin learning those those constellations. So, how how did you learn the constellations, Shane? And do you have any sort of tools, tips, or tricks for for people who who just just want to learn those those constellations really to get started? Yeah, uh, probably the best tool that I can recommend, and it's one that I've used and and used for many many years, uh, and it's known as a, a planisphere. So a planisphere is something you can take into the field with you. Um, and it has, um, trying to explain this, it's, it's best to probably do an internet search on this thing or, or YouTube video just to get an idea of what I'm talking about. But basically what it is, is a, 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 like a piece of uh, plastic or cardboard, and there's a central disc in it, which rotates. And this disc has um, illustrations of all of the constellations in the sky. And then on the outside of the disc are dates and times. So what you do is you match up, like you rotate this disc so that it uh, is the correct date and time for your current location. Um, and then what you do, there's like north, south, east, west on this uh, planisphere. You you put it overhead and you hold it up to the sky, aligning you know north to north. And then it provides a map of the night sky at that time for your location. And that's to me, one of the greatest ways uh, that you can learn the constellations. Um, you know, there's all kinds of apps out there that you can get on your phone and it uses like the gyroscope in your phone. So you, you hold the phone up to the sky and it, it kind of shows you where everything is. Um, I've used those kind of like, I, I don't have a lot of usage time with those, but I have used them in the backyard. They're okay. But sometimes I find like the scale isn't quite represented very well, or yes. what my phone is showing is, is not really aligned with what is in front of my eyes in the night sky. You know, maybe it's off to the right or off to the left. Um, so I'm not a, as huge a fan of, uh, of the apps. I, I really like the planisphere. And the, the typical thing too, I guess, with constellations is usually they're comprised of some of the brighter stars in the night sky. So, you know, you look for some of those distinct stars and then you start to draw the lines, you know, in the sky to uh, understand, you know, the, the outline of the constellation. Yeah. And, and I, I have to underscore, you know, not, you know, we, we use, um, you know, planetarium software and other things for, for planning our sessions and, uh, you know, I'll even, even create my own star charts from them and print them off physically and take them into the field. Um, but there's, there's a few challenges with using screens under the night sky. One of them is that, uh, the, the screens, I mean, at least, at least all the screens I've seen are too bright. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're often fairly bright. Now there's some things you can do to tone them down. Like there's settings on the phone that allow you to, to put like a, a red background on, uh, and, and really tone down the brightness and you can even get like red overlays to put on the display of your phone. Um, so that, you know, it, it's greatly reduced, but the thing is, is it's usually such a large surface emitting light that yeah. it's kind of hard to really control. Um, now, if you're in, if you're in the backyard, if you're in a light polluted sky, I don't worry too much about phones or any of that kind of stuff, because you're probably not getting that dark adapted anyway. But, yeah. um, if you are outside, like if you've made the voyage to go to a dark site, I just don't like to spoil it with any kind of light, you know, yeah. as little light as possible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as well, you know, like we were saying, um, and I've helped a few people out with these and it is always a little bit frustrating where, um, if they're not, if the software isn't set up properly, 
you know, just, just like with the planosphere, you kind of have to set the day and time and have the general location and that sort of thing. But typically you'll buy a planosphere based on your, on your latitude. So like uh, you can get one for like 50 degrees North, which is more or less where we live here in, uh, in Saskatchewan. And that will work. That will work more or less pretty much anywhere in, in North America, give give or take. However, um, you know, you can get ones for 40 degrees north, which which is great if you live like in New York, or you can get ones for like uh, 30 degrees uh, north, which is great if you live in the in the uh, southwestern states in the U.S. or, or something like that. Um, and then there's, there's there's all kinds of different ones um, that you can get, and that that works really well. So that that kind of bit of the setup is is done for you. Whereas with with the phones and and the other apps, I often find that uh, well, people haven't haven't put something in right, or they haven't put the 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 uh, Greenwich Mean Time in right. So so it's not correct uh, correcting for um, when it's night here versus when it's when it's nighttime in the UK, and and of course that that that, that doesn't work so well. Um, and and they're they're kind of getting different constellations up, and it it seems like that would be a simple thing to do, but you know. Um, with electronics in the night sky, like I was working with my, uh, I, I have a, a com- computer driven mount um, that can br- both work computer driven and not computer driven. And I was doing some, some finding of, of things last night. And I thought, wow, like I know where these things are and I know what stars I need to have a pointed at to get it aligned properly. And, uh, and that's pretty easy for me to do, but, uh, but oftentimes for, for newcomers, um, those are going to be some pretty large barriers for, for getting into it. So uh, that, that's why we recommend sort of these, these older sort of analog, just, just a, a plastic or paper planisphere, and then just, just kind of learning those constellations first before trying to get into this, this uh, computer-driven technology, eh? Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, maybe I'll just take a pause here and maybe explain the process uh, as well. So if you're taking a telescope out under a dark sky or, or even maybe a light-polluted sky, um, Usually what you're going to do, and I'm going to make an assumption here that you're manually moving the mount yourself. It's not one of the computer driven ones. So if you're, if you're doing this, um, usually the way you begin is you, you, well, first of all, you want to know what you're looking at and we'll get into how you determine that. But once you have the object that you want to look at, um, you're now probably going to star hop to it. So you start at brighter stars that you can see with your naked eye. Um, and then you, you use the telescope and you move from star to star to star until you get to the object that you want to look at. Mm -hmm. Now that's why identifying the constellations is important because you can often use one of those stars in the constellation to begin your star hop from. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, starting off with the planisphere, you know, you're able to locate the constellation, then you can locate the star within the constellation. That's important to you. Um, and then you can start to navigate to some of the, um, you know, nebulas, galaxies, clusters, whatever you might be chasing down within that constellation. Right. Yeah. And, and even like, you know, even some people may, may want some even more basic advice. You know, one thing that I, um, that I typically go over in, in my astronomy classes, my, my very basic non-credit university astronomy classes that, that I teach beginners trying to learn the night sky is, um, this great resource at skymaps.com. I'm not affiliated with skymaps.com. I'm not really, I, I don't know everything about them, but, um, it's a reputable site. And what they do is every month they put out a free, uh, star chart, uh, that you can print off and, uh, and, and what they do, they do something really well. And that's that they help you learn 
all the different um, bright stars and constellations using the moon and where the moon is in the sky. We'll say, okay, like the moon is going to be near Regulus or the moon is going to be near Antares tonight. Um, and on the left column, just about every day, it has where the moon is listed or where other things are, are listed and where, what else is going on in the nighttime sky. If there's a meteor shower or something like that, all these really basic things. And I actually think if somebody did this, if somebody really wanted to learn the night sky and you didn't have a lot of time, you could probably print those off and just take like 15 minutes or half an hour a month and go out with it um, in your backyard. And you could, you could probably learn the sky over the course of, of a year or two. Um, just, just using that, it could be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great suggestion. So what else do we have? There's some other basic books I think that can, uh, that can really help people uh, get going in learning the nighttime sky. Uh, I don't know if you, if you had any um, sort of early books that, that kind of helped you uh, trace out the constellation chain or, or any advice for tracing out the constellations other than using a, a physical planisphere and not relying on, on trying to drag out phones and iPads, which also are expensive. And like last night, it's extremely dewy and you wouldn't mm-hmm. want to leave an iPad sitting out for, uh, for three or four hours uh, in those conditions it would probably be damaged. Yeah. Yeah. One book that you and I have talked about on previous episodes of this podcast and, uh, you know, is near and dear to our hearts, um, is night watch by Terrence Dickinson. Um, that's one that I started off with early, early on. And, and there's multiple, uh, revisions of this thing, but even if you find an old one at a, like a used bookstore, which is actually what I did, I think my first copy of that was like $2 or something like that, that I got at a used bookstore. And the thing is, is the constellations basically don't change. No. So it's still valid. And, um, it really, it's an awesome guide, you know, to the constellations and some of the prominent, um, things within those constellations. Yeah. And what I like most about, about Nightwatch is uh, Terrence Dickinson, who's, who's the author. Um, he has this very, uh, great way of teaching people the night, night sky. And that book has these sense of charts sort of by season. There's sort of like four of these main seasons in the year, just like there is, uh, the seasons that we experience. And by, by seasons, we're talking about different stars that appear in the nighttime sky, depending on whether it's winter or, or spring or summer or fall. And, um, and he's got this, this beautiful bit in there, uh, sort of, uh, well-drawn, charts that that depict what the sky looks like um just to your eye with those with those bright stars and then on on the other page he details out um a bit of a a bit of a chart um sort of allowing you even like sitting in your living room on on a stormy night um to look and go back and forth and kind of become familiar with looking at the stars sort of in a natural way you know of course when we look up there's no there's no um there's no lines lines drawn in the sky although sometimes i always like to joke and say it was so dark we could see the 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 lines connecting the constellation patterns um but but you don't see that on the nighttime sky and of course that's that's part of the joy of of learning this um, and he really, he really does that well. And then, so he has these, these basic scents that help you, uh, see the sky just as your eye would see it. Um, and then you can take those out under the nighttime sky and, and the book is designed, it's ring bound. So you can lay it flat somewhere on like a car hood or something like that. And then, um, he, he's got some more advanced charts in there, which actually, um, depicts some of the brighter deep sky objects. Um, and the other thing he does is he connects all of the star patterns because oftentimes, uh, and although it's, this is, this is less true now, but oftentimes in the past, star atlases would not connect, uh, 
the the brighter stars that that depict the most common uh, star patterns, and that 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 can be a bit of a barrier to people trying to learn the nighttime sky if it's just like dots on a page. Like, what am I looking at, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a really really good book um, for all of those reasons. Is there any other ones that stand out to you, Chris? That are you know good for somebody just getting going? So um, this this is one I I bought recently. It's another Terrence Dickinson book. It's it's even more basic, you know. It, it and it just goes to show that everybody learns um, a little bit differently. So he actually has a really really basic one called Exploring the Night Sky um, by Terrence Dickinson. So th- this one's really inexpensive. I, I think I paid nine dollars for one new off Amazon. Um, but anyway, in that book, he he breaks the sky up into I think five or six different sort of dominant um, sets of constellations by um, by sort of typical times of the year. So, so for example, you might even say like early spring and late spring and early summer, late summer. So I think there's maybe maybe even up to eight sets of these these patterns. I have it here. I just don't want to flip through it. Um, and. Uh, people that were taking my astronomy class were actually getting this. I wasn't recommending it. And so I, I bought a copy. Um, my, my spouse, she actually learned the, the night sky when she was um, doing her girl guiding. And, uh, and, and she, she learned uh, the stars and those, those patterns using this. Um, and it's good. It's just that that section isn't very big and it's, it's an inexpensive book. It's almost like a, like a, like, like a, a really good pamphlet almost. It's, it's pretty thin. Um, but that section in there is, really nice. I kind of wish that they would pull that out and do something a little bit different with it. Um, but in, in night watch, uh, he expands on that a little bit more, but I, I think exploring the night sky, if somebody was really just a rank beginner and looking to get, um, very basic guidance on learning a few things. Um, that book has, has something really basic that you can pick up and kind of read the pertinent sections, uh, over the course of an hour or so, like a, like a very relaxing evening, having, having a, a cup of tea, um, and then, um, one of the other books and I, and this is one I do own and I have owned for a while is, uh, is by the author of the curious George book, strangely enough, H.A. Ray was also an amateur astronomer and he actually, um, worked to, to create better depictions of, of the star patterns that we see. And now they're, they're a little bit different maybe than the ones you and I are, are more familiar with. He drew in, in a few extra lines, but by simply going out with that book, then it's almost like in workbook format, like the workbooks uh, we used to get in grade school. Um, and and by, by using that book and kind of tracing out those patterns, um, you can become more familiar with sort of those dominant patterns, like the keystone of Hercules and the square of Pegasus and uh, the, the W pattern of Cassiopeia and all that stuff. It really focuses on the ones um, that are a little bit in the, the patterns and making those patterns that are a little bit more easier to recognize um, than maybe some some of the other patterns that uh, that have been talked about previously. And those have been sort of uh, adapted uh, over time. So yeah, do you have any other uh, recommendations there for people just, just looking to get started and finding stuff in the night sky, Shane? Um, no, no books or anything like that, but I, I think we probably should move on to the next step in the process, which is there's a whole bunch of stuff up in the sky to look at. Yeah. How what do you we, look at? Yeah. How, how do you even know what to look at? Uh, you, it, let's say for example, you want to look at a galaxy, you know, how, how do you find where the galaxies are? Um, so there's, there's a number of observing lists and, and maybe not even lists, but there's, I guess maybe there's catalogs. So catalogs of objects in the night sky, and there's multiple different ones. There's the NGC, IC, 
um, a lot. There, there's a whole bunch of different catalogs out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what, what people do um, is create observing lists usually out of those um, catalogs. Yep. Now, probably the most famous observing list, uh, at least I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the Messier observing list. Um, yep. And it's 110 objects. Uh, most of them are, are quite bright and somewhat uh, easier to find. Um, and it's uh, the quick history of that is Charles Messier was an astronomer that was looking for comets uh, a long time ago. And basically what he would do is scan the night sky with his telescope. If he saw something that was fuzzy or diffuse, he would, um, he would kind of chart the star field. And then he would come back a few days later and reobserve it. If that fuzzy thing moved, then he discovered a comet. If it stayed mm-hmm. static, it wasn't a comet. So I think he ended up discovering like six or seven or eight comets in his lifetime. But what he's really famous for is this list of non-comets. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of astronomers, uh, a lot of amateur astronomers start off observing that list because of, uh, you know, it's bright. Uh, a lot of the objects are large. There's a lot of detail to see. Um, but uh, there's there's a bazillion observing lists out there that can yeah. really meet just about anyone's observing interests or styles. Yeah. And I, I think that, and that's one of the challenges that, uh, that newcomers can face is, you know, well, well, well what should I uh, look at up there, you know, and, and where do I, where do I begin? Well, I, I think like we covered, like, first of all, start learning the constellations. That's key. You know, I, I uh, sometimes we'll, we'll chat with newcomers who have really gotten into um, like computerized telescopes and stuff, but then they're trying to look for, for things and, and, and struggling to, to determine exactly what, uh, what they want to see next, because uh, they, they've been reliant uh, on the technology Um you know, not the technology isn't good, but but sometimes they've become too reliant on it, so they're they're sort of struggling on, on where to go next. But um, but then for other folks who are really just getting started, like these lists can seem pretty long, like 110 things, and certainly some of those things on the MSA list are reasonably faint. So a lot of organizations, like I know, like the uh, in the states, the Astronomical League, um, and here in Canada, we have uh, the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. And, and we've put out a program um, called Explore the Universe or Exploring the Universe. It's one or the other. Um, but if you type in uh, Explore the Universe, RASC, um, we've put out a free program through the RASC Observing Committee, which I sit on. And uh, anybody can go and download it. They're, they're PDF sheets. And, uh, and anybody can go and, and apply to the program. You don't need to be a member of the organization. And, and you can get these nice pins and a certificate. Um, and what that program does is it actually breaks out. I think um, it's really just a few dozen different things that you can see in the sky. There's some stars and there's some really easy to see clusters and uh, a bright galaxy or two and that sort of thing. Um, and it really gives you like a, like a very brief introduction um, to the night sky and, and the things uh, that you can see. And there's some other resources at, uh, at RASC.ca. And like I said, just, just go on there and look under uh, observing programs and you'll find ex- Explore the Universe. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great suggestion. Yeah. So charts, how do you, how do you find this stuff on a chart? Right. So here's, here's another reason also to use a list. So when you decide on your list, you're, you're going to have a list of the objects, which is obviously important. Now, what else is important is where they are. So which constellation. So we've already talked about how to find the constellations, but Um, If you're trying to find out where the object is within the constellation or within your atlas, um, 
you, you need to know some details about that object. So um, the list will have some coordinates for that object known as right ascension and declination. And um, those will help you locate where the object is within your atlas. Now, maybe before we get into that detail, Chris, what's a good atlas? You know, what, what atlas do you use? What atlas would you recommend? Yeah. So, you know, if, pe- if people are just getting started, I really think that Nightwatch by Terrence Dickinson, actually, it has a, a really great basic atlas in there, which I think is is all the atlas an absolute newcomer needs. Um, and and he he draws out the main constellations like Ursa Major, the, the Big Dipper, uh, Boots, uh, the Herdsman, um, you know, Leo, Orion, all those kind of main constellations are in there. And really like a, like a newcomer to astronomy um, who's trying to learn the constellations, maybe using the charts at skymaps.com or the HA Ray book um, in combination with Nightwatch. I mean, you, you can really probably go for, for maybe a year or so. Some people might be faster than others. Some people really might want to take their time and that's great. Um, but then like beyond that, like if somebody, okay, is like, all right, I, I really want um, a good chart because I'm really into astronomy now. I think the best getting started chart is the Jumbo Pocket Atlas by Sky and Telescope. Um, they make a pocket atlas, which is a little bit on the small side. I think we all bought copies when it first came out. Um, and then they put out a jumbo edition, which I think, which I think is is perfect for people who who are just learning the skies. And the reason why is that that chart actually one, um, it's pretty inexpensive. I forget what it costs exactly, but I think it's it's a very good value as far as a star chart goes. The quality is extremely high. It comes from um, a very reputable organization, which is Sky and Telescope, and some of the best amateur astronomers. Um, out there for creating these type of materials. And then also they draw in the star patterns um, in there so that like if you are looking at Ursa Major, you're going to see that dipper pattern depicted there. It might be spread out across two or three different pages, but, but it's still there. So if you've recognized the dipper pattern of the Big Dipper before, uh, that's going to be in there. Whereas if you if you bought um, one of the older star charts, like I know these are these are a little bit out of print now, um, like Uranometria, um, you know, which I do want a copy of, like there's no, there's no, there's no constellations drawn in there. And then some of the other charts that have been around for years don't have the, the constellations drawn in there either. And certainly if people want that experience of, of just having, having the, the stars themselves um, sort of standalone with, without any of the lines drawn in, then uh, certainly pe- people can look to, to some other charts, but uh, what would be a, a, a more advanced uh, star atlas that, that you can recommend Shane? Um, well, one that you and I both own, and I know we both quite like it, is Interstellarium. Um, yeah. It's probably generally regarded, I think, as one of the best, maybe uh, it, it certainly like top three type of atlases out there. Yeah. It's uh, exceptionally detailed. Um, I, I forget what magnitude it goes down to, but I want to say it's like 11 or something like that. It it goes pretty faint. Um, I feel like it's not that, but it, no? I think okay. it's like eight or nine or something like that. Oh, okay. Right? Okay. It's getting down there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's a wonderful Atlas, um, with a a ton of objects that you'll probably never have enough time in your lifetime to, to observe them all. (laughs) Yeah. I really, I really like, uh, the interstellarum. Um, and, and I think it also draws in, uh, the patterns, um, which, which is, which is really helpful. And then, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of material in there, but I, I think they really struck, um, a good balance, 
Um, one that is is really the cornerstone for people that are um, sort of pr- progressing is the uh, Sky Atlas 2000. But but to be frank, I think the Sky Atlas 2000 and the Pocket Atlas are now almost synonymous. I think they actually use the core information from the Sky Atlas 2000 to, to make the Pocket Atlas. And then uh, once you get into the Jumbo Edition, um, of the Pocket Atlas, I think you, you've basically got the Sky Atlas 2000, more or less. And I, th- I think I think you, you've really got what, what, what you could have gotten out of the Sky Atlas 2000. I'm going to say this about star charts. This, this is one thing that most people aren't going to realize because um, I, I didn't realize this. I use software and I use software for planning my astronomy classes for teaching newcomers to astronomy. And I also use them for planning my own uh, astronomy sessions. And um, when I was first making star charts for these purposes, I quickly realized that um, you can kind of get lost in space pretty quick um, because one of the things that you're, that you're paying for when you buy a physical atlas versus just trying to use a piece of software is in the software, you can zoom to any kind of level. You can zoom out and see the entire night sky, or you can zoom right in and make just, just a, a, a double star system or quadruple star system or something fill your entire screen. And that's really cool. But when you get out under the night sky, how does that scaling work? What scale should you have it sent to? And, and that scaling needs to be uh, fairly accurate or your eye and, and your brain won't be able to translate what you're looking at on a page or a screen and, 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 and into what either you're looking at with your eye on, on the sky or through a binocular or through a telescope. And, and so there's, there's a bit of a barrier there when you are using uh, softwares uh, under the night sky or, or even like for me printing off star charts. I, I had one last night. I've got some that are working and I, I got one and I'm like, this, this doesn't work because I've scaled it wrong. And so uh, people do need to be aware for that. But with like the Pocket Atlas or Interstellarium, they've done that scaling for you so that you're not, you're not sort of getting lost in space by having these, these different zoom levels. So I'm not sure if you ever experienced that or not, Shane, but that's certainly something that, that I discovered, um, which was unanticipated. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and scale is, is kind of an interesting concept. And I think it's somewhat subjective. You know, I, I think it varies from person to person in terms of their perception of the sky and then seeing it on paper, but I can definitely relate to that. Yeah. And it, and it depends. So, so for example, your fist at arm's length, we've talked about this before, and we, we do usually refer to it every month. We do our objects in the sky. Your fist at arm's length is approximately 10 degrees spread over the nighttime sky. And then, so if, if you were to correctly depict the star chart, um, you would want to have maybe that scale to a certain extent, right? And then it depends on how close or how far away you'll, you'll place your eye to, to the page, for example. And, and I, I, I could be wrong on this, but I, but I believe when I was looking at um, uh, E.E. Barnard's uh, Atlas of Selected Regions of the Milky Way, and I, I, I printed off a copy when it became available digitally and then subsequently have, have bought my own copy of it, um, when it was reprinted, um, I noticed that that the scale was was pretty good for for about that kind of same uh, distance. And then other ones you kind of have to bring sort of closer to your eyes to kind of make sure that it that it matches. But if you're using um, just a regular piece of software and you're like trying to zoom in on something, um, it it can become really bewildering to to sort of match what you're seeing on the screen with either what you're seeing with your eye or or through a telescope. That that's very difficult. And I kind of kind of meet up actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, uh, the, 
the the fist at a arm's length is a is something I use all the time. Yeah. How about marking up the star chart? So, so you've decided what you're going to look at. You've got yourself a star chart. Um, where where do you go from there? Do you just take it out with you and, and look at the sky chain, or do you do any kind of prep work before you before you go out under the stars? Well, well, both actually, but um, I prefer to do a little bit of work prior to going out and mark up my star chart. So what I've done is uh, I purchased some post-it notes, but like those little arrows that mm. you can write on. And what I do, so before I observe, I'll spend whatever amount of time, half an hour or so, uh, understanding which objects I want to look at. Then I find them in my atlas or on my star chart. And I put one of the post-it arrows pointing right at the object with the NGC or whatever the catalog designation is. Um, And then when I go out observing, what I love about this approach is all I do is observe. I don't spend time looking at my star chart for the object and then trying to find it in the atlas and then finding it in the sky. And, you know, that's, this is just something actually that I've started doing based on um, uh, like kind of your recommendation of, of how you were doing it. And it is so much better doing it this way than trying to find the object in the atlas while you're at the telescope, at least for me. I, when I'm at the telescope, I just want to observe and this yeah. gets rid of the frustrating you know, trying to search for something with a red light, you know, on a piece of paper. Yeah. And, and like right now I'm, I'm looking at a set of approximately 50 um, things in the nighttime sky spread out over a constellation, which, which is spread over maybe six or seven pages on my atlases. And uh, you know, and, and it, and it's, it would be daunting to, to go out there just with a list and then you're looking at the list and then looking at almost like this, the sea of, of objects in your paper, it would just, to me anyway, I would just be overwhelmed by that um, to try to do it in any kind of uh, uh, efficient uh, pattern. You know, I'm trying to do this over the course of a month or so. And, uh, but if I was just to go and try to pick these off one at a time, um, I think it would just be just be so difficult. But look, one of the other things I want to rec- want to mention, and I, I don't know if I if I mentioned this to you or not in the, in, a, in a recent episode, but I actually used the wrong color ink when I was marking up these charts for this. Oh, jeez! So you couldn't and, see it. <laughs> and so at night, we use red lights. This is another thing that we we haven't mentioned, but we're sort of talking about finding stuff. But but using a very dim red light is important so that you preserve what's called your night vision. So during the day, your your eye will constrict, your pupil will constrict, and 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 let in less light because there's lots of light around. And at night, that that pupil will open up. Now, if you're out at night and you're looking at a star chart um, and you use a white light that pupil will constrict. And then it takes about 15 minutes to half an hour for it to open up wide enough to really see all the stars again. And that's something that, uh, that also newcomers face as far, as far as a challenge. So you can actually go and buy uh, these astronomy flashlights. Um, typically they're between like say 20 and $40, um, which, which can be a bit of money. So typically what I recommend for people to do, and, and this, this isn't the best if you really stay in astronomy, but it certainly will will get you um, really far in astronomy without having to shell out um, so much money for a red LED. But um, just just get an inexpensive red flashlight and put some red duct tape or red electrical tape or paint the lens red or use a use a uh, a pill bottle cap if you have a pill. I have a pill bottle cap here that's that's red that will fit over a flashlight. You, you can use all kinds of different things to dim it and make it red so that your eye isn't um, isn't dilated by the or, or isn't isn't constricted by by white or really bright um, lights when you're under the night sky. Eh? 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Controlling that light is super important. Yeah. And what I did is, is I used a color ink that was invisible under red light at night. I didn't know that. I just, I grabbed a pen at random and I'm like, this is invisible ink at night in the day. (laughs) It looks like it looks totally fine. Um, so I actually had to go through with, with the black, um, uh, ink pen and I, and I just went and, and inked them all again in the, in the warm afternoon sunshine so that I didn't get, get the ink everywhere on my star charts. But yeah, I mean, my, my star charts, I will never be able to sell them. They are marked up. Um, I, I've got sticky notes, but, but they're, they're battle scarred for, for sure. You know, uh, they're, they're going to be well used. Yeah, for sure. So what's next in the process, Chris? Well, one thing you talked about, you know, we sort of made these notes up. We we're going to, we we're going to sort of do one thing and then we, we switch gears right at the last second. And I really like what you said about using your binoculars. And now we've talked about binocular astronomy a lot in the past, but binoculars really get you more than halfway between what your eye sees alone and what you see through the telescope and binoculars are great because they turn they, they make sure everything is right set up and correctly oriented where the telescopes are typically going to be turning things around quite a bit uh, mirror reversed upside down all this kind of stuff can make things a challenge uh, to find so like you were saying you know what, what you can do is you can find stuff with the binoculars first and then find it with with the telescope. So particularly like anything that would be like in the Explore the Universe program, which is a free program by the RASC, which is a volunteer organization uh, that we belong to. Um, Typically anything in that program, you can see with your binoculars first, and then you can actually um, use that to kind of guide you um, when you're pointing the telescope to that region of the sky. I, I, I do that a fair bit. I think you do that as well, Shane. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I did it a lot more when I was first starting out because like you said, the telescope can change the orientation. So like a Dobsonian, uh, left, right is reversed and up, down is reversed. So to do the mental gymnastics in your head of, of, you know, trying to match the star chart to what you're seeing through the eyepiece can be a little challenging, especially if you're tired and you've been observing for a while. Mm-hmm. So sometimes just getting the star field and the binoculars, because everything is as it appears in the Atlas or your star chart just makes it a lot easier than to go to the telescope and, and kind of say, oh, it's left of the bright star over here. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's really good. Um, one of the other things that, that people can do, and, and I really I really like using the binoculars quite a bit because they're correctly oriented. Um, and it, it makes, again, like you said, that you don't do the mental gymnastics, um, but you can get finder scopes that will correctly orient the image for you. And so I've, I've had these in the past and I've recently rolled my own, which, which costs a fair bit more than just buying one off the shelf. You can, I think you can buy a pretty decent one off the shelf for probably what, like 50 or 60 bucks or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. And, and they just simply mount on the the telescope. Um, Typically there's ways to mount these, these finder scopes on whatever telescope you have, and you can get one of these correctly oriented um, finder scopes and, and see, see if it's for you. Now, some people, um, I know like one, one person who's pretty famous in the amateur astronomy community is Ed Ting. And I was watching one of his videos. He, he does YouTube videos now. He's been around in the astronomy community since long before YouTube. Um, but he was saying like he prefers the straight through um, version. And, and I guess there's a couple different types of finder scopes um, that people can actually use on, on telescopes. So sort of what are the main two types there? There's what are the main two types of finder scope, Shane? Well, I I think I would 
boil it up to a high level of there's optically aided finder scopes and then like non-optically aided in terms of magnification, like a, a one times and then a multiple times uh, yeah. finder. Yeah. Like a zero power finder. I think they're sometimes called though. I think you're right. I think it's more like a one times finder. And then, uh, and then ones that actually will, will be like little refractors uh, all on their own or, or some, something, something uh, like that. So do you use any finders at present or have you used any finders in the past for helping locate things in the sky? Yes and yes. So <laughs> when, I, when I first started off observing, um, I kind of had a three-stage approach um, to finding an object once I you know, was at the telescope. So number one is I would use uh, one of these like zero times or one times. Uh, uh, it's basically like a red dot finder or a reflex finder. So yep. I was using a Telrad. And what it does is it, it imposes like some rings in, in red and you can control the brightness. Um, and when it's aligned, you, 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 wherever these rings are pointing, that's what your telescope is looking at. So I would use that to get me into the general field. Then I also had a, uh, I think it was a seven by 50, uh, finder, like optical finder on the telescope. So then I would use that because it, you know, gave me a pretty wide field of view. I would use that to get me, uh, kind of more into the star field that I needed, uh, to find my object. And then usually in the telescope, uh, focuser, I would have a bit of a wider field eyepiece, mm-hmm. um, that would allow me to see the object or find it then, you know, hopefully with relative, uh, relatively little movement at that point of the telescope. Yeah. And then if I wanted more magnification, I, I would use more magnification. Um, now, uh, what I do use quite a lot actually, though, still is the red dot finder. I just love how quick you know, you point the red dot at whatever star or planet that you want to observe, or at least start star hopping from. And it yep. just is so fast. The acquisition is quick and, uh, I love it. It's basically like, uh, like a, like an advanced sighting tube really is what these are. They're, they're, um, you know, the better part of an inch across, usually they look like a little tube and then they have a little red dot that gets projected onto the uh, screen. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, they, the, the power consumption is, is like next to nothing. Like I leave Mm -hmm. these things on all night and, uh, I don't even know if I replace a battery once a year, like they, they do a really good job. And again, you can vary the brightness. So if you're in a light polluted area, like within the city, you may want it brighter so that you can actually see the red dot. But then when you're under a dark sky, you can tone it way down so that it's not, you know, blinding you almost when you're fully dark adapted. Yeah. And they often come with beginner telescopes. So though I, I, I gotta admit, I, I bought a couple over the past year f- for beginners and, uh, and I didn't, I didn't give them because some of the really inexpensive ones are improperly constructed and they have a, the, the, the plastic screens or the glass screens lack the opacity and lack the functionality. And it was very difficult to actually see the stars through them. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. the, I'll, I'll just instruct them to use super low power eyepieces. So um, if you are getting one, get one from like a reputable uh, telescope store, um, make, make sure that it's, that it's one that, uh, that isn't just necessarily included with a telescope, like a really inexpensive telescope, like some of the ones um, I was getting um, uh, get, uh, get a proper one, you know? Um, and I think, I think a really good one run about like 39 or $40, um, or something like that. And definitely like the Telrads are still out there and the Rigel systems are still out there. And those are sort of the, the original red dot finders, but yeah, it just, just allows you to, 
have a red dot in the sky and basically whatever you see with your eye, like you learn the constellations like we talked about earlier and, and you can just point it at a particular star or, or area of the sky where you know there's a deep sky object and then uh, that, that'll be centered in, in your low power eyepiece, like Shane said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so then when we get into optical finders, Chris, there's definitely some variations there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to take us through some of that? Yeah, one of the things that that I, I notice with folks is they often get focused on having a, a bigger and bigger finder. That's that's very common to hear in amateur astronomy uh, circles, and I think that people maybe just haven't haven't fully thought through that. So with the finder, uh, what you're doing is you're you're placing uh, the primary telescope into a position where it's. Uh, going to be on whatever it is that you're looking for, which is typically going to be fainter than what the finder sees. So you want to get a finder that has a really high quality wide field of view, whether it's straight through zero power um, or or maybe a more advanced finder. So for example, my advanced finder and, and finder scopes will come in, I think you can get them in like about a 20 or 24 millimeter size. Um, aperture size, a 30 millimeter is pretty common, uh, 40 and 50 millimeter are common. Then you can get them all the way up to like, I think three or four inches. Um, but I think probably the most useful ones are sort of in that 30 to 50 millimeter size range. And so I've, I've recently, uh, sort of rolled my own, uh, finder scope of, of 50 millimeter in size, and it's an optical finder and it has what's called an Amici prism in it, which is a correctly oriented, it's, it's uh, right side up and correct left to right, just like a pair of binoculars. And then, um, with this one, I can actually use any eyepiece I want. I can actually use any eyepiece in it that I want, um, which is something that I always wanted to have. And what that allows me to do is have a super wide field of view. And I think that is uh, one thing to focus on a little bit more than any of the other aspects of a finder scope is just having um, a high quality and pretty wide field of view. And again, many of these can be uh, can be purchased off the shelf around 50 or 60 bucks or so. And, and then um, you'll be able to look through them. Now, the advantage of rolling your own is you can use all of your own eyepieces. And I like to have, or I need to have long eye relief because I wear glasses at the eyepiece. And uh, I just want a little bit more, more control over how wide a field um, I have just for some of the objects uh, that, that I'm looking for. It can be, can be pretty challenging to see in my, in my small four-inch uh, four telescope. But sort of like speaking of telescope, Shane, you said uh, use an appropriate telescope. What, what did you mean by an appropriate telescope? Um, did I say that? <laughs> I think I meant maybe, um, like using a, maybe was it an appropriate eyepiece, like a wide field eyepiece in the telescope? Okay. Um, maybe that was it. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, no, no worries. I just, I, I wanted to make sure we were on the same page. I'm a little um, tired. So <laughs> yeah, that's what I stayed up does, all night last day to turn to. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like having a wide field eyepiece in like really what, what we're talking about here with all of this stuff is um, kind of increasing your success of finding an object because mm-hmm. it's not always easy when you're manually trying to locate them, but they're, it's extremely rewarding. I love, I love the kind of the hunt, you know, or, or trying to find this stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, you're, you're just trying to kind of slowly narrow down the area of the sky that you're looking at. So you start off with like, uh, like I say, like the red dot finder, which has mm-hmm. no magnification. It just gets into the general area of the sky. Then you could go to an optical finder, which 
um, allows you to maybe star hop or, or see some fainter stars, which again, point the telescope closer to where this object is that you want to find. And then you go to the telescope with, you know, a higher powered eyepiece, but hopefully still a wide field of view so that it makes it easier for you to see the object. Because Mm -hmm. if you have a narrow eyepiece, uh, and the object is, you know, just outside of the field of view, you're, you're not going to find it and you're going to keep scanning around and maybe get frustrated, but mm-hmm. a wider field of view allows you to just see more of the sky through the telescope. So you're more likely to find this object. And then once you find it in the telescope, you know, you center it and then, you know, you could put different filters on if you're looking at nebulas, uh, you can do different magnifications to see if you can pull out more detail. Um, that's when the real observing begins. Yeah. Yeah. One, one thing I'm going to mention is, uh, is like go-to telescopes, which are, which are pretty popular. I'm going to mention go-to telescopes and then, uh, let you talk about the right ascension and declination. But, you know, with, with the go-to telescopes and, uh, and even, even my telescopes can be set up as, as go-tos. Um, the challenge can be that, that with many of the things that we're looking at, they're at the threshold of vision. So people might be listening to say, well, why wouldn't I just buy a go-to telescope? I, I set it up, I go through that process, I punch in some numbers, then it goes to the stuff that I want to see. So the, the challenge with that is most of this stuff is, is going to be really faint. There's, there's a handful of brighter things that, that you can do that with. But for example, I was looking at a planetary nebula that's just eighth magnitude. That's a pretty bright planetary nebula. And I was hunting it down using my right angle finder scope and my four inch refractor last night. And uh, if I just simply punched it in, there's, there's no way I would have seen it. You know, I'm an, I'm an, I'm an experienced amateur astronomer. And sometimes what I do when I line my telescope is I will actually, like, as it's getting dark, I'll actually punch in something. Last night I punched in M4. I could not see, I couldn't see it. Maybe if I had hunted it down, I would have seen it, but, uh, but it was just too bright. The sky conditions weren't right. So there's, there's some other challenges than simply just buying a piece of technology, punching in some numbers, and then being able to see it. And I think that's what we're, we're talking about here is that there is this process, whether you want to follow it or not, you're, you're going to end up having, you know, having to learn this process as part of doing amateur astronomy. And this is sort of the love of doing it. Um, this is that process for actually successfully uh, finding that stuff because, and I know this is that I get <laughs> hundreds of people showing up for my cl- astronomy class for the past few years saying, I bought a go-to telescope and I can't see anything through it. And I'm like the telescope, and they're often great telescopes, really good optical telescopes, but to actually see the stuff, you need to go through a little bit of, of a process here. And again, like my telescope has go-to functionality, but when I'm trying to find um, a lot of things, I'm not, I'm not using that functionality at all. In fact, I don't, I don't really use that go-to functionality. I use it for, for tracking and getting on some other targets. Um, maybe once I've located them, maybe as, as the conditions are getting darker, I might go back to a target or something like that. Um, but that's really how it works. But Shane, going to let you talk about right ascension, declination. Um, those are the coordinate systems for actually finding stuff. And how do you use right ascension and declination? What do they mean? And how do you use them for finding something like, uh, say, M31, the Andromeda galaxy? Yeah. So, so right ascension and declination will be listed um, for objects like on an object list, or like if you look up an object in planetarium software, uh, it will list the RA or right ascension and the declination, uh, usually abbreviated um, DEC. Now, what you do with that information 
is you go to your star chart or your atlas. And these are just like maps that you would like a a topographical map, for example. Um, There are coordinates on your star chart on the outside edges, uh, top, you know, left to right, and then on the sides, top to bottom. And um, that is your RA and your declination uh, coordinates, so to speak. So if you are looking for, um, I don't know, M31, I don't have the coordinates right in front of me. That's okay. um, where are they? Oh yeah, here we go. So the coordinates for M31. So right ascension is 42 minutes, 44 seconds. Declination is plus 41 degrees, uh, 16 minutes, nine seconds. And it's so, in the constellation Andromeda. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what you would do on your star chart, you'd find out um, where Andromeda is in the, in the Atlas. And then Just flip, flip to that page. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, flip to that page. And then along the side, you know, you'd look for where's, a, where's roughly 42 minutes. Okay. Hold your finger there. Now look on the other axis and look for 41 degrees. Uh, Cause that's the declination. And then just basically kind of draw almost straight lines. Like there's a little bit of curvature and there's some guidelines and atlases that show you that, but you basically connect your fingers and that'll get you probably right on Andromeda galaxy, or at least very close. And then in the Atlas, you're now looking for M31 in that spot. Um, and now, you know, once you found it, now you can go to your telescope and find M31 in the sky. That, that's, and since you touched on it, I'm going to get you to describe Mercator projection now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what? That's, I think that's the crisis. I think that's what the curvature is called of the charts. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's a perfect way to describe it. Is that you 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 find out what constellation the object is in that you're looking for. You find that uh, set of charts uh, on uh, on your atlas, and then uh, you use just that RA and deck, like make that right angle connection, and then usually whatever you're looking for, like most things like 99.9% of the time, they're going to be plotted on that chart if you're using um, the appropriate chart for the stuff that you're looking for. If it's not plotted, then you know you're in for a bit of a challenge. Um, you know, typ- Typically, uh, things that you can see are, are going to be plotted on, on the chart. But I think that's a great explanation, Saint Shane. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think with everything we've said here, you know, starting it off, like right at the very start, like talking about lists and, and where to find the objects you want to observe, uh, some good beginner books like Night Watch, then some, you know, atlases. And, you know, you're, you're, this is the process to finding an object with your yeah. telescope, right? You know, beginning to end. And we're probably missing some, some things. And, and everybody, I think, has or develops their own approach. Yeah. Um, but this is a pretty solid guide, I think, that will help get people going. And, um, you know, even, I, you know, even me, who I've done this now for, you know, well, almost two decades. Um, just this year, I started to mark up my Atlas with those post-it notes. So, you know, you can always learn, I think some different methods too, that can improve your observing, even if you've done it for a while. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me, it's all about just maximizing my time at the telescope and, and, you know, seeing as many objects as I can. Yeah. And, and, you know, I have to stress this, this process, the finding of stuff, this really is the rewarding process, you know, and then the, the observing of whatever it is that you found, um, that's sort of like the other half, but, but that discovery, that discovery process is in, in many ways, that's the thing that kind of keeps us coming back and keeps us 
um, looking through the telescopes because, you know, there's, there's not as many things, but, uh, you know, in life um, where you can actually look at sort of that, that original article, um, you know, if you're looking at a Hubble space telescope image, well, sometimes the things are going to be too faint, but a lot of the stuff you can actually see uh, for yourself, it's, it's going to look different, you know, but a lot of these stuff with these, a lot of things that we look at in these natural sciences, um, we can go out and see for ourselves. And then again, like with astronomy, um, you know, I was looking at X uh, off Yuki last night and uh, I, I was too tired. I didn't quite get the observation down good enough, but um, you can do a, a variable star estimate and submit it to the Variable Star Association, AAVSO. And, uh, and, you know, and that will contribute to the greater body of science. Um, so it's sort of like one of those few things where you, you can be doing that uh, in these natural sciences. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And with that note, Chris, I think it's probably time to sign off. All right. Well, I'm going to get some sleep. Yeah, you should. <laughs> right. Now that my batteries have been replaced in my in my detector. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Shane. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast check out our website, actualastronomy.com.